Hello everybody, and welcome to Deceleration Theory, hosted by myself, Thomas Cooper. I hope to use this podcast to examine the collapse of the spiritual and ecological under the reign of the material, an analysis, per se, of the the destitute times in which we live. Wow, (laughs) that sounded so bleak. I suppose it goes with the music, though. Not that the the music correlates at all with the the joyous discussion that you're about to hear. And in reference to the discussion, as are my exemplary podcasting skills, I managed to lose my original introduction. So very briefly then, I am honoured to be joined by the co-host of the excellent podcast Weird Studies and author of the book Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, J.F. Martel. Um, Links to both his podcast and his book will be in the description of this episode. And while I wouldn't use the the term honoured, I am also grateful um, to be joined by my twin brother Jack. And for those that know him, as soon as the pandemic is over, he is hoping to leave the country to pursue a life of Buddhist monasticism. Our conversation is loosely focused around JF's book, that goes to places that I never envisaged that it would. And it is about time then that we join it, at a point post-introduction, remember, in which I'm asking JF a little bit about his podcast and how he got into the weird. Enjoy. So uh, I'm a writer. I also do film and TV for a living. Um, and I guess I would say that I'm some kind of independent thinker, scholar, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not in academia, but I have a, uh, an interest that I've never been able to fully exercise in like, you know, philosophy and, and magic and religion and that sort of thing. So um, all that kind of interest led to me starting to write about these topics I guess about uh, around 2007, 2008. And since then I've written a number of essays. I wrote a book called Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice that led to my meeting Phil Ford, a musicologist from uh, from the US. Well, he's actually Canadian, but he lives in the US and teaches at uh, uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. And um, we started corresponding. We had crazy long email correspondences like uh, we're talking like 10,000 word emails to one another and at some point it became uh, obvious that we needed to change mediums change planes as they say so we decided to start a podcast and that was weird studies and we've been doing that now for I guess three years at this point. Do you think that in terms of so Phil's in academia Phil has tenure at a university do you think that, um, have you ever seen yourself as possibly moving into that sphere? Or do you think that your kind of ideas exist solely outside of the kind of mainstream academy? Well, you know, the grass is always greener, as they say. So I've always regretted leaving academia, well, not leaving academia, leaving grad school anyways. I've always felt a need, I guess, to go back and finish what I barely even started. Uh, I was a bit of a flaneur, you know, in my twenties, and um, I was very, I was very proud of it at the time. And I guess uh, at some point, I was a flaneur long enough that it, I crossed a line where I would be a flaneur for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> I, I, I am still that, 
Um, and, uh, and I've come to peace with that. You know, I've made my peace with that and I, I don't see myself in academia. Um, I've managed to kind of build a career for myself doing things I enjoy and, and uh, it seems all right. And I love the freedom of deciding what I'm gonna read next. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously I read a lot and I like to choose, I like to navigate that in total freedom. Um, Weird Studies has changed that a little bit because it does impose some structure on the reading and on the thinking because, but in a very good productive way. So I guess, I guess Phil Ford is as close to academia as I'm <laughs> likely to get in the next uh, little while. Yeah, no, that's yeah. perfect. And even he represents kind of with Weird Studies, uh, kind of a gap between. between oh, right. Right. Like, I mean, part of his, the reasons why he decided to do Weird Studies, and I don't want to put words in his mouth but um, <laughs> in our conversations uh he wanted to get out of a you know certain stifling quarters of academia which where he thought he couldn't express his thoughts um clearly so for him weird studies was an outlet but also became part of now of what he does as an academic which is fantastic and even in the three years since we started this there's been a kind of seismic change in academia there's a lot more I mean, this had started before we we created the podcast, but obviously, I'm not, <laughs> uh, but like there's a, there's been this progressive change in uh, in the the epistem that's been that's been allowing for more thinking along these lines, right? Mm, completely. And then in relation to uh, in relation to the book, I think mm -hmm. there's two crucial distinctions that uh, need to be made before we properly get into discussing it. And one of those right. distinctions is the real. Uh, with the capital R and the real with the lowercase r that kind of mm -hmm. run through the entirety of the book. And while I'm sure uh, Jack, myself and yourself will all have different definitions of what that real with the capital R is, I imagine they're probably grasping at a similar thing. But how would you define that real, uh, the capital real? Right. Uh, the real, it's one of those... Um elastic concepts that keeps the changes depending on how I'm using it. Um, and I admit to be, I admit that I'm using it in a somewhat slippery way sometimes, but that's some, that's what you have to do, you know, um, sometimes to get at something, but it doesn't mean I think it's ultimately slippery. I think there are good definitions of the real. And uh, I guess one of them, I mean, and this, this will, probably just cause more confusion because now I'm going to quote Lacan defining I... the real, but I don't really agree with Lacan's take on the real in general, but there's this one thing he said about it. <laughs> uh, and I have to remember, I'm going to have to paraphrase. I think he called it something like the limit of all formulation. So the, the real being the point beyond which no formalization the limit of all formalization, the point beyond which formalization becomes impossible. So that's one, I think that that's one take, but it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stop there. The real to me is that which is, that which is whether or not we humans are there to perceive it. Mm. That's what the real is for me. And so that doesn't mean that it's the same as what materialists would 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 uh, posit uh, as re ultimate reality. Um, it means that it's a reality that is without requiring a cause, 
I guess I would say. So already we're in murky <laughs> metaphysical <laughs> territory. You've caught me on a on a bad day for defining the real. Uh, but I think that as we talk about it today, it'll probably mm. become clearer as we use the, the term in different contexts. But that is the key distinction. So good on you for getting there because it's the one question nobody ever asks. And I think it's the most critical, most important question but at the same time, it's the question I can't answer. So. <laughs> yeah, it's asking. My first question was asking the unanswerable question. But I think that uh, that That's that chimes to, to what I kind of what I feel about the real. Because I'm a big fan of the philosopher Ludwig Klages. Uh, whether or not I'm, you I'm not familiar with his work. Yeah, no, even counts with any of his thought. But he considers life to be this kind of like this Heraclitian cycle um, mm -hmm. of the all-pervading image that our souls are receptacles of the image and then the poet or the artist can actually kind of put their foot down in the river and that's when we're grounded in the real it almost feels kind of like uh, again you talk a lot about the Jungian archetypes but the Clugesian reality is almost kind of like uh, it's almost kind of like beneath the image that which always pervades that which always is because he thinks that life is kind of like this this rhythmic flux and I'm sure Jack you'd kind of agree with that yeah although um I think like your quoting of, of Lacan with Klages there are some sort of separation that is required concerning what he did and believed in other aspects of his life and um mm. and the elements that he got at the real like um pretty much so many German continental philosophers and the the kind of the anti-semitism that that they also kind of espoused, but right, yeah, we separate. yeah Klages is one of the the murky Germans, um, right? Who, uh, <laughs> while being incredible, come from that kind of post-romantic era of, uh, of 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 slightly of slightly dodgy ground. But getting us yeah, back yeah. to getting us back to to the real with the with the capital R. Um, in terms of your experience, whether that be through art, whether that be through meditation. Um, whether that be through magic, I'm I, I'm not sure if you're a practicer or you practice magic. Do you feel like you've ever had a proper glimpse, like a or an encounter with the the real, with the capital R, kind of like the underlying absolute? Yes, yes, I have, and I don't think that such an experience is all that uncommon. In fact, I think that it's quite common for people to suddenly touch on the real. Um, it's just that since there's no formalizing it. It's very difficult then to share that. But I, I think that mystical experiences are much more common than they've, than they've been made up to be. Um, and so, yes, I have had experiences like that. Uh, I want to just go back for a second to Heraclitus, because Clages was influenced by him, and he's one of my favorite philosophers as well. Um, Heraclitus, of course, like all of the pre-Socratics, has been reduced to a kind of you know, a, a one or two aphorisms, mm. which is fine because we need those sh shorthand takes on things to make sense of things. And the pre-Socratics are like chess pieces. They're easy to move around the board and see where you stand even to this day, right? Because they kind of cover the ground. Um, but if, but Heraclitus um, studied more closely and more, with more subtlety uh, is very different from that. I think that Heraclitus speaks a lot about logos, right? Um, in fact, I think he was the kind of progenitor of the concept of Logos as it evolved in, in Greek thought, one of them anyways. And Logos is precisely that which doesn't change. 
but it's not a thing. So, so it's true that Heraclitus saw the world as a kind of flux of becoming. There is no thing that's not becoming, but there is something that's not a thing that's the logos. And that's, I think, I always say things like, it's the fact of our knowing it. It's the fact that we can know about becoming. If everything was pure becoming, we wouldn't be able to know it. Consciousness itself requires a kind of like transcendental, like Kantian almost kind of jump out to see it. And that requires the, a notion of fixity that I think Heraclitus had in his thought. But um, Nietzsche didn't like threw it out the window when he used Heraclitus because it wasn't his interest. It wasn't in his interest as a modern to admit of that fixed point, which the minute you admit it brings you into religious territory almost automatically. You can't mm -hmm. just remain secular and materialist or whatever you want to call it once you've realized that you need that fixity because the fixities not cannot be accounted for on our models, right? Um, so so. So yeah, and I think that, so I, I guess philosophers who've seen that, who've touched on that, are people who've touched on the real. I think the real is kind of really, really common. Um, it's like we say in our episode on, uh, on um, Philip K. Dick, I think one of the early episodes where we talk about the beer can in the gutter, which was Philip K. Dick's way of describing the Holy Grail, you know, um, the trash stratum, often <laughs> the truth is right there. And it's not something you'll need to climb a mountain to find necessarily, although sometimes that might be required, like it's up the, it's up the mountain too, you know. Um, but like, it's about, so I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's, I think the real and the truth is cheap. And I think that's precisely what we've forgotten because of the abstractions we've been fed, right? And this is where uh, the, I think this is where artifice, um, the other, so it's reclaiming the book's title is reclaiming art in the age of artifice. Right. Um, I think this is where artifice comes in and plays this crucial role in kind of muddying the waters between uh, the everyday real that we're fed and the real that's actually accessible to uh, to to um, to us uh, in terms of all of our potentialities. So in relation to art and artifice. Do you think there's an easy definition, just to clarify to the listeners, uh, the differentiation between the two? That's a question I get a lot more, so it's a lot easier to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Uh, so that chapter on art and artifice was very difficult to write, even though it's very, very short, uh, like all the chapters in the book. Uh, it was very difficult to write because I didn't want to be the guy who starts to like, who sits there on a throne and people bring him various works of art and he's like, <laughs> artifice, art, artifice, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. but it seemed essential at that point to, in order to get to what art's all about, to, to at least define what it's not. It's mm. often the path of apophatic kind of negation is the easiest way to get to some kind of positive statement about anything, so... I thought, okay, well, what's really not art? And then I remembered this milk commercial in Canada from the, the early 1990s where they used uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, but every note was the word milk sung by a, like a horrible choir, like milk, milk, <laughs> milk, milk, milk. And, and it's just like, it was like a sea of milk, you know, like, and it was just the most awful, awful commercial ever made. It, it almost seemed like a, an act of, wanton and willing and conscious vandalism uh this ad and it completely ruined beethoven for an entire generation of kids wow seriously in canada i don't think i don't even know if canada's recovered from that goddamn milk commercial <laughs> and then 
And at the same time, uh, also around, so as I was thinking about the book or before I even considered writing a book, as I was trying to, as I was try starting to write about art instead of trying to make art um, and trying to make films specifically and finding it very difficult because it's a hard business to work in, especially if you want to do things your own way. Um, I, uh, during that time, I got a contract for a big company in, 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 uh, in Montreal to design um, <laughs> to design the town square of a gated prefab community in Louisiana. <laughs> so they, in Louisiana, they were building this gated community. You guys know what that is in the US? Yeah, 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 right. They might even exist in Britain at this point, for sure. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it's, it, they were, it was just basically like a swamp and they drained the swamp <laughs> and then built this, uh, this, this suburb. And the place had a name. I'm not going to use any proper nouns because I don't want any of this to go get back to people that I still respect and <laughs> may work <laughs> with again. Um, and uh, the name of this of the of the bayou um, had no history. Nobody knew why it was called that. So I had to write. Uh, they asked me to write the reasons why that place was had that name. So I, I, I wrote a little piece of fake U.S. history. That would then be given to the people who bought homes there to explain how their community was originated and then they had this town square they used they were using all these projections and they would have like a, a christmas show so i wrote this christmas show using uh the names of locations around there as characters and elements in the story to kind of just mythologize their little suburb the suburb never actually was built because of uh, katrina hit wow. uh, the big um uh Earth, what was it? <laughs> I remember it was an earthquake or what? Yeah, I hurricane, think it was an hurricane, earthquake. hurricane. Hurricane, goddamn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of, yeah, some kind of disaster. Um, and uh, and uh, so it never saw the light of day. But as I was working on this, um, I realized that there was something very, very wrong. Um, as the proliferation of aesthetic tools and aesthetic construct continued, um, the danger of misusing it, of using it in the way that Nazis used the aesthetic, right, uh, became all the more uh, immediate and obvious to me. So it, it became kind of imperative to start theorizing about this stuff, at least for myself, so that I knew uh, when to say yes or no in my freelance work, at least, right? <laughs> and then, and then I started to think about the difference between art and artifice, and um, so. The long way of getting to the definition. Um, artifice is art that contains its own interpretation. So if I draw you a picture and I either put a little label next to it telling you what to think about it, or I draw it in such a way that you would be, it would be unethical of you to think differently about it than how I obviously portrayed it. Think of a film like, I don't watch movies anymore. Um, I keep going back to freaking Avatar, which is like ancient, um, <laughs> but like, but like Avatar, think of Avatar. Like imagine meeting someone who's, you guys have seen Avatar. Is it that far back? No. Okay, good. Um, so uh, imagine watching Avatar with your buddy. And then after the movie, he's like, oh man, I was really rooting for the humans. That'd be insane. <laughs> You would be you would be literally crazy to root for like, there's there's no leeway in that movie there's no room for you to um, alter your 
loyalties or your thinking, um, there's you have to be thinking the way James Cameron wants you to think. That's art of his. And art is precisely the opposite. It's drawing you a picture and letting you think or feel as you will, uh, not as you wish, right? But as you happen to feel inclined to do, right? So um, that's the big difference. And it's a simple thing. And, uh, and I think that that's what makes the difference between that milk commercial or that ridiculous suburb and something like an Emily Dickinson poem or a, a painting by Van Gogh or any of the things that in our culture we've, we've, we've preserved for reasons, right? Uh, the Hamlet, you know, Shakespeare. I was reading the sonnets uh, this over the holidays for the first time, and damn man, that's some good shit. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad they preserved that. You know, it's got value beyond what mm. it had at the time, right? So these are gifts that keep on giving because uh, our work of artifice is an object put in front of you. A work of art is a whole. It's opening onto something else. It's a window, and mm. so it 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 it. it it's a prism. It'll change according to the light. Just like if you take Hamlet and hold it up this way, it looks different from when you hold it up this way. If you're this person holding it, it's not the same thing as if you're that person holding it. These are magical, magical things. That's why at one point in the book, I say art is paranormal. I, I actually literally mean it, that these are ways of organizing matter in such a way as to short circuit the means and ends thinking that we operate under uh, in the day to day. Mm. I think that's that's perfect. And uh, yeah, in your book, you you say you you call it art is designed or artifice is art designed to serve instrumental reason. And right. uh, moving on to a, a thinker that I know you're very familiar with, Arthur Macken. Um, oh yeah, who I'm also a big fan of. And I was uh, I purchased a book of his letters, um, which he used to write to fellow occultists. And amidst his uh, his hatred of the French. Oh and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just hated the french so badly he really hated the french in his daily routine um its fellow occultist arthur Waite refers to Mackin as a a true mystic who held that art's true purpose was to penetrate the prosiac veil of outward appearances to reveal the celestial splendor latent mm. in the commonest things and i think that's almost kind of that's almost an all-encompassing at least to me um, absolutely absolutely hieroglyphics i i read after the first draft of of reclaiming art and it complete i was like i almost stopped writing the book i was like well <laughs> i knew i knew Mac, and at that point i'd read only a few things i'd read um the great god pan and i think i'd read one or two other stories not even the white people though other anyways and then i i knew that he'd written this this essay on on literature so i ended up picking it up at some point while I was writing Reclaiming Art. And I was like, oh, he even has the art and artifice dif distinction in there quite literally. Yeah. And so I decided to see that as a sign that I was right. <laughs> because how could we both be wrong in exactly the same way? <laughs> um, so I kept writing the book. I kept writing the book. And I think that I um, refer to it, in it, but it's it's we just did it on weird studies and it's just a fan hieroglyphics is the book it's a fantastic fantastic essay um unfortunately a lot of listeners didn't like it because of how dated his opinions are a lot of people were very mad that he didn't like jane austen uh, a lot of people were very you know um but you know i'm actually french canadian and if i can read Machen, even though he like would literally despise me and see me as some kind of mongrel 
if he met me, then you're able to you're able to stomach, you know, his dislike of Jane Austen. Just get over it. He's fantastic. The ideas are amazing. Mm. No, I found it. Uh, yeah, I did. I did find it very funny. His uh, his literal. It is just an unfounded hatred of all things French, <laughs> uh, which I is great. He, yeah, he refers to he refers to the cult in in the book. He refers to the the French culture as poisonous. Yeah, <laughs> poisonous and all pervasive. Which I quite, which Does I quite give any enjoy. reasons for it. Not really. No, uh, <laughs> he never feels the need to qualify it. <laughs> <laughs> he feels as if it's it's an unspoken truth that just yeah. everyone would fully understand his reason. Right. <laughs> it's hilarious. He's also, he's really he's really anti-science uh, in in yeah. As well. um, so it's this really interesting. Oh, I, I found it really funny. He was right again. He was writing to Arthur Waite, and his son was fifteen at the time. And he said, uh, I think you'll be glad to learn that Hillary, aged 15, is clamoring to learn Hebrew in place of physics. Open brackets. What is that nonsense? Close right. brackets. And I quite like this kind of, uh, I feel like he embodies this, this negative capability. Um, oh, yeah. He's his idea of negative capability, of enjoying yeah. the, the splendors and the mysteries as, as mysteries in themselves. Correct. I think you're absolutely right. I also think that he... Uh, it's funny that he despised French uh, culture so much because obviously he fits right into a current of thought that, that has uh, some strong roots in, in Paris, right? With uh, the decadence and that the symbolists and that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, um, I think that he shares with those decadent poets, um, people like Baudelaire or uh, Mallarmé and, uh, you know, and then on, on the English side, I'm, you know, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde and that sort of mm. thing. He shares with them a kind of like willingness to be damned, to damn oneself. He, he his his affect, not affectation, but his affect was to rebel against the kind of dark satanic mills of modernity. And so he went all out. It was a it was a poetic move. And I think that obviously in his day to day life, he probably appreciated the fact that. Yeah, I don't know. I guess he probably appreciated the existence of such uh, medicinal marvels as morphine at the time and that sort of thing. And uh, but of course, that's not what he wrote about. So I think there's a, a level of kind of some rhetoric in there too that we have to bring. That's part of the vision he's trying to convey. Um, yeah. And do you think uh, that I was, I was when I first kind of read the your how you define art and artifice. Do you think that another kind of frame that you could use for it is um, relative truth and ultimate truth? I was thinking that in terms of artifice, of seeing kind of analogies uh, with, if we, if we did take um, Buddhism or other religions as an example, how that there are the, there are these surface, these surface teachings, which then um, kind of fold away and give way to a, a kind of ultimate ultimate truth the kind of the experience of the real and how um in society that that kind of maintains a sort of semblance of order and is a way for for people to engage with this stuff at a at a lower level and at a relative level to to their capability right no I, I yes i think that's very important uh the way that i framed that in the book was by talking about truth i, I didn't talk much about truth in the book but i called it radical mystery which I think is the truth. Um, radical mystery understood not as a, a 
our incap incapacity to know the truth as humans, uh, but rather as the unknowability of truth itself. And even that's not quite true because radical mystery, if it's a truth, then it's a knowable truth. So what I mean is that radical mystery is what all art points to ultimately but I'm a bit of a Neoplatonist with art. I find that there's there are concentric spheres that every work of art kind of like creates around itself. Um, and at the very center, you'd find radical mystery. So this is what in the book I'm talking about when I refer to, I think it's Degas ballerina paintings as whenever you see a painting of a, of a, a kind of in, like an everyday object, um, uh, not that the ballerina is an object, but like uh, like uh, like uh, of a, a weird moment, uh, uh, one moment whatsoever on a painting, right? Um, and you, there's always the question that the question about why that thing was chosen to be portrayed, why the artist chose that thing, and then it gets you thinking about things. Why this thing? Why, why is this thing framed out of the world? And how, like in its being framed out, doesn't, in its, doesn't it in itself become its own world? Doesn't the ballerina stretching as she prepares for a rehearsal become kind of a whole universe in that moment in the frame? Doesn't the ballerina exist on the same plane ultimately as the wall and the colors and the lines that shape her and her surroundings, this kind of leveling effect that art has, whether it's a novel, a poem, a painting, a piece of music, whatever, um, calls us to the mysteriousness of anything being at all. And I think in that sense, all art almost kind of mechanically is a kind of mystical thing is it points us to that. It, it brings us towards that. But there's another level in the middle um, which has to do with symbols and it has to do with what an artist chooses to put in the frame and what that thing means once it's been taken out of the network of cause and effect that we normally operate in. So if I choose, for example, um, to the an example again from the book is take a, take a photograph, a very artful, beautiful photograph of a door. Well, it could be that that door in reality in New Delhi or whatever, leads to like a latrine, right? Or a back alley or to a burnt out building. But once I've taken the photo and framed the door outside of its original setting in this image where it exists on a level with the wall and the vines on the wall and the, the light coming down and the shadows, once it exists on it, it becomes a symbol. It's not the door to the latrine anymore. It's not the door to the burnt out building. It's the door to X, it's door. It's a door, it's a gateway to the underworld. It's an entrance to other play, to other realities. And this is what happens when things are framed aesthetically properly, they become symbols. And on that level, we're not yet, we're not in the ultimate mystery thing. At that level, we become able to think about things in relation to other things in new ways. So we start to be able to think about what is the doorness of a door? You know, How does that relate to my politics? <laughs> what does that mean? It's true. Like, what does that mean? Uh, you know, what does it tell me about blackness? Like in the, the blackness of the, the darkness within beyond the doorway. Um, what does it tell? You know, it, it opens up all these new associations that become instrumental to me in the good way in my life. As I think about my own life, as I think about the meaning of things. So we're not in the Dharma now. We're not outside like in this ultimate mystical uh, truth, we're in a, 
it's a truth that's neither, it's, it's relative, but it's relative at a deeper level than the relative truths of the everyday. And art gives us that intermediary place. What uh, Henri Corbin, the French um, uh, scholar called uh, the imaginal, right? Um, so there are these concentric kind of worlds that, that the, the aesthetic as such, and of course the aesthetic as represented in art, uh, as, as, as exemplified through art, allows us to access. Do you think that the, uh, the key thing sort of that, that art gets at, one of, one of the most important things is, is just this idea of um, purposelessness or a bit, a bit, a bit of, sort of aimlessness and this, uh, it's kind of cool and how it's, it's true art is kind of radical and almost can be dangerous in the sense of that it's, it's pointing to, if, you, if, you're, if you're taking the frame away or if you're seeking to understand the why why am I why am I framing this specific thing and and why are we being framed and kind of going trace going back and back and back and back um right no there is no why and it just is and that that's what kind of art represents that it is kind of just being and that is the sort of mystery um the mystery is that, that we don't have the answer we don't know the why that we that we we lack at its sort of deepest level we lack that that purpose that we kind of in so much of relative truth we kind of think we have and see yeah absolutely absolutely i think that um it it, it takes you there and uh i think that my reference for trying to get to that i think in the book was the book of ecclesiastes which i think is a kind of a buddhist text really um from the bible where um Koalith, the supposed author of this book uh, talks about all being vanity. Vanity is the, the word used, I believe, in the King James translation, but it meant at that time emptiness. Sunyata, right? Um, and yeah, the minute I can frame an object out of its, like if I have my toaster, I know what my toaster is every day. I rely on my toaster being a toaster. If my toaster breaks, I get mad because it's not being what it's supposed to be, which is a toaster. And so I get it repaired and then it's a toaster again. And now I like it again, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but if I, if I, if I make a painting of my toaster, all of a sudden the toaster has no function. I hang it on my wall and I'm looking at it and it's not a toaster anymore. It's something else. And I realize in that moment, just through that process of framing it out that it exists in this emptiness. Uh, that, that, that things have relative meaning to one another, but they don't seem to have any ultimate meaning, which doesn't mean, it's not the same thing as seeing, saying they have no ultimate significance, yeah. but they have no ultimate signifiable meaning. And so we abide in this emptiness, this sunyata, and art is, um, I think, a way of celebrating that, strangely. And, and I think that there's, it's, it is, like you said, it's, it is dangerous, this purposelessness, right? Um, because it can lead to kind of nihilism. Mm-hmm. It can lead to despair. And, and those are not unviable or they're, they're not um, in, invalid uh, conclusions either. You know, that's, that's the danger is that those conclusions, those nihilistic places people end up are not invalid. I, I, I hope that they're ultimately inadequate to the nature of reality but I certainly can't think of them as invalid. One of my favorite writers, Thomas Ligotti, is an absolute nihilist. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, uh, not a big fan of the nonfiction, uh, but the fiction is, is, 
to me incredibly beautiful despite its its darkness so so there are dangers down the path and there should be if it's worth going down it's probably because there's something that can yeah. eat you at some point along the way but i think there's also there's also a danger to to, to relative truth as well and that i i recently read um bernardo castrop's book more than allegory that um i and i'm, I'm my old I'm, enemy <laughs> i think and i think that i think that he um he's he's brilliant in in many ways and has like some fantastic insights but um with with the book more than allegory it seems to he comes to this conclusion that the our purpose is that we are we are mind waking up to itself and he he draws some sort of stunning um conclusions and and reasoning um but and it was incredibly convincing until I simply just thought, well, like there is no, the, even the idea that we are mind, the, our purpose is mind waking up to itself or God, sort of seeing God. Why is that? You can go behind that. You've sort of drawn some brilliant analogies and, and seen myths and stuff, but there is, the ultimate why is that you can't explain that is uh, a creation and that that is the kind of, I think that although he's so brilliant, he's attempting to provide a, a mechanism to explain things that just can't be explained at their fundamental level. Yeah. Like every uh, absolutist. Uh, and I say that with a lot of respect because I do think that Bernardo is brilliant. Uh, I think ultimately he's kicking the can down the road. Um, far enough so that you won't have to be bothered by it anymore. But I don't think that his metaphysical system um, really resolves any of the issues that a truly existentially tormented person uh, is bothered by. I don't, I just don't think that it resolves anything. I think it just basically postpones the moment. And, 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 Ultimately, I don't think it's any, it's, I, I think that by the end of, of, of that book, I was like, this is literally indistinguishable from materialism. Um, there is no distinction anymore between an, a, a radical idealism and a radical materialism. You still end up with, I mean, how does he define consciousness? Con consciousness is that whose excitations are experiences. Well, okay. How is that different from the wave function? It's exactly the same. I think the um, is maybe meaning i think that's what i would suggest that that's like yeah but but your critique your critique is pointing at the ultimate yeah yeah <laughs> but i think that i think that that's his what he is so valuable because he's uh he's combating um the sort of dogma of materialism going like this is also the like i don't think his system isn't perfect but it's he's saying like there is a choice here that ultimately materialism, believing in materialism and that sort of meaninglessness that kind of um, inevitably comes from that, that is a choice and that you can also choose to um, believe in my framework, my idealist framework, which imbues life with meaning. I think just that, well, I realized that the ultimate, the ultimate kind of, if you go behind that, then it kind of, it does, it, it relies upon faith. And I think that that's the kind of, what why he's important is attempting to kind of combat um yeah. especially in academia and philosophy this faith is such a dirty word dirty word at least in much of the western um academia and i think it's that that's what we kind of going back to is that faith itself is 
is unavoidable when and we have faith in so many different things um simply like faith that the bank will hold my money and not right um, go and so so it's so it's that sort of faith that we need to go back to and that isn't just that isn't unbelieving dogmatic faith it's faith which we doubt and criticize and use our intellect but it's still faith i agree Uh, that's a great point actually um uh the faith that the sun will rise tomorrow is kind of an act of faith the faith that causality will continue to be the case uh is necessary to operate certainly necessary if you want to open and run a bank uh but it's necessary if you want to use a bank or if you want to write uh uh more than more than allegory if you want to write that you need you need to believe in causality of course that's the part where um i think it's it's uh the the philosopher for me who got to the heart of these questions is Quentin Miasu. do you know him uh he's a french philosopher he wrote a book called um in english it's called after finitude an essay on the necessity of contingency it's i would really recommend it um and uh, Miyasu is not uh, at all, um, actually, hmm. I don't know how much Miyasu and I, if we happen to meet one day in an airport, uh, I don't know if we'd, we'd agree on, on little things. I don't know if I would agree with him on, on, but I certainly think that he hit the jackpot when it comes to philosophy in our time. Uh, his idea of absolute contingency is to me was a life changer. It was also a confirmation of deep intuitions that I hadn't been able to, to articulate to myself for a long time. Um, and so, and he gets into this question of faith. Uh, he doesn't get into, I read a lot into Meyasu and a lot of people have read it and going, I don't know, <laughs> you've been talking to me about this other guy. That's not the book I read. So you might, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm, maybe this Meyasu is more like a, my own creation, but um in my mind, Mayasu gets into this question of faith and how we, why we choose to believe in a world that, that continues to exist, um, that can or must continue to exist as it has. You know, he goes back to David Hume's famous, famous um, realization uh, that causality was not uh, inferred, but um, uh, a purely empirical notion right? That you couldn't logically deduce causality. You could only observe it to be the case and then believe that it would continue because it has been. Like, there's no reason why if I throw this pencil in the air, it comes down. It's, you can say, well, it's gravity, but then gravity, that's just, again, you have to explain yeah. gravity. Why does gravity hold? Why do the ultimate law, what, why do the ultimate laws of physics exist? You know? So, and, um, and Hume was like, well, there is no, we just believe that they must exist. We, we, we can't account for why reason exists. We can't, you can't rationalize reason. You know, reason ultimately rests on some kind of irrational grounding. And Mayasu just takes that and ontologizes it, just turns it into this ontological principle of hyper chaos and that there is no necessity to anything except that it be contingent. Um, so his his thing is that the universe rests upon a completely contingent arbitrary um event that made everything the way it is and that could the universe could just stop existing tomorrow or x number of laws could stop applying tomorrow or new laws could suddenly appear out of nowhere and all those for no reason at all or for any reason whatsoever it doesn't matter 
So for me, that was my, uh, my way out of a, a dead end that um, I felt I was stuck in when I was debating with Bernardo um, around that same time that as, as I discovered this book. And, um, and to me, it, it, it kind of like spelt the end of, uh, of metaphysics for me personally. Um, that type of systematic construction um, I just realized any construction you, 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 you care to come up with will be resting on the same ultimate abyss, abyss with like abyssal foundation that we can't really fathom. Yeah. Anyway, sorry about that. That was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, okay. I mean, as soon as we conclude, the first thing I will do is uh, I will order that book. Um, yes, do we've so. Spoken, we've spoken a lot so far about the relationship between the work of art and um, the viewer of such art. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship between the artist and the art. For you say that I thought was really profound, you say that the artist does not choose the prophecy, rather the prophetic shines through, um, shines through the artist. And I think that in, at least in relation to the artists that I know and I encounter this, uh, this kind of almost delusion that they must be the driving force of the meaning behind their work rather than simply be a receptacle of, um, of the absolute or some wider meaning actually renders their works artifice for it renders their works yeah. incredibly shallow. And it's almost like they emanate this distinct lack of meaning, um, mm -hmm. which is counterproductive to what they are, what they try and achieve. But in relation to that point, um, it seems to me to suggest that are you proposing that there's almost this kind of like Aldous Huxleyan mind at large, which as receptacles of the artist simply kind of uh, can pull more of such and then transmit that through their work in the sense of the divine genius exists independently of the self and is channeled by the artist? In a way, I would. Um but I wouldn't define it as mind at large. I wouldn't define that thing that speaks to us through art as in the singular. I would always keep it plural. Um, so in a sense, I'm kind of, I guess I can kind of polytheistic on that. Uh, I believe that there is a multiplicity. Uh, Jung called it the collective unconscious. I really like that notion. Although again, that singularizes it and it should be, it should be like the collective, um, well, collective, it should be like the the, the 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 teeming horde of demons. That's what it should be called. <laughs> and uh, and those and the teeming horde wants to, has a lot to say about a lot of things, and then selects people to um, to use as conduits. There's a great moment in in uh, uh, Jung's essay on uh, it's called on the relation between analytical psychology and poetry where he talks about the artist, two types of artists. The artist, the, the kind of Dionysian, doesn't use those terms, but that's what he means. The kind of like um, uh, the Dionysian artist who just creates, like does, not even in control, it's almost like they're possessed and they'll write like a poem, like a, a huge poem in one night and then it, it'll be finished, it'll be perfect. And then the poet who quick, slowly meticulously over a long period of time chooses each word and he says that it may look like those are very different activities and that the the second case the second 
poet, the, the Apollonian poet, let's say, is much more in control and therefore that his or her poetry is much more reflective of his or her opinions about things, his or her own thoughts. But he says, no, if you look at it, even in the case of the second poet, um, that poet is being just being possessed on a deeper level. Um, he, that poet is, is, is being guided and uh, is fooling uh, him or herself uh, into thinking that they are in control. And, and, you know, artists who are famously Apollonian, people like Stanley Kubrick or Samuel Beckett, uh, poets who were, I mean, artists who were, uh, took a long time to produce work and worked on each piece, uh, you know, making draft after draft or edit after edit until it was just right. Uh, often they talk about a point in the creative process where the work just makes no sense anymore. They've basically exhausted all of their ideas and then they have to continue just to make it hold together. They just have to push it a little further because it's going to fall apart. And then they get to this new place that they didn't expect. And that new art, that new work, as a good Platonist, I believe that that work was dormant, latent all along. And there's a point where basically an artist's skill is commensurate with their ability to put out finally what the teeming horde of demons wanted to see in the world. And so um, I do believe that the personal uh, opinions of the artists are, they're not irrelevant because they're one of the ingredients that go into making a work of art. And they're one of the reasons um, for which uh, the demons, and I, I, I want to stress that I'm speaking metaphorically here, uh, the demons would select that person, right? Uh, Wagner was a, a virulent anti-Semite uh, asshole. Um, and uh, but created works that only a virulent anti-Semite asshole could create. And ultimately those works, I would argue, um, completely invalidate anti-Semitism. Um, they speak against uh, any form of ideology because that's what art does. It destroys ideology. Um, I think it was, um, what's his name? Uh, I won't go there. But like uh, the, so, so, so I don't know if that answers your question. But um, I does it answer your question? No, 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 completely. And <laughs> fantastic. Uh, the, the destruction of ideology. I'm referring back to, again to Ludwig Klages, as he's my favorite, uh, as he's right. my favorite philosopher. He kind of has this uh, this conceptual image of man as um, comprising of body and soul, and then he uh, conceptualizes spirit, um, and he says essentially what spirit is is spirit drives a wedge between body and soul whereby mm. they can no longer communicate. And I think that in terms of uh, reconceptualizing spirit uh, to kind of um, fit in with our modern conceptual framework, the idea of ideology, the idea of capital almost fits perfectly because he says that kind of the world that's pervaded by spirit is a world that's fundamentally dead because we can no longer access the soul. We can no longer access the soulful images that should be pervading other than the poet, the poet is the only, uh, the only means of accessing this past. And the monk. And the monk, of course. <laughs> the monk keeps it to himself, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, no, I totally, that resonates very, very deeply with me. I'm going to have to check him out for sure. Thank you for bringing Klages. How do you write this name? I think uh, I've seen this name before. K-L-A-G-E-S. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. So I have seen his name quite a bit, actually. It's one of those names you see and then you never think to <laughs> dig deeper but thank you um yeah that, that 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 seems right on to me yeah spirit 
I mean, uh, again, uh, you could come up with positive um, takes on the concept of spirit, uh, the spirit of, you know, I'm a somewhat of a fan, I guess, of Rudolf Steiner, who um, had uh, this idea of spirit where like spirit is, is part of the full picture of a human being is you need it to be in there. You just don't want it to be in charge. You don't want it to take control. Mm -hmm. And it does act as a kind of intermediary between soul and body. And so as an intermediary, as an intermediary, it is in a position to do, um, to do damage if it doesn't act as a good bridge. So I like that, that way of framing it. That's beautiful. One thing uh, I'm interested in is, did, did you read before um, writing the book or have you read um, Ian McGilchrist's book, um, The Master and His Emissary, about the um, difference in the hemispheres in the brain? No, uh, I did read, um, oh God, what's his name? That 70s book about the, the bicameral mind and the, read that long, long time ago. I can't remember the guy's name anymore. So I don't know if he was, if, if no, I haven't. No, I because, didn't. Because um, that, that is interesting how um, re reading that work, how it, well it correlates with uh, reclaiming art and um, his uh, it's, uh, I would recommend it to anyone. Great. It's like, um, it's a, it's a really a magnum opus in which um, Ian McGilchrist first taught literature and then he retrained in medicine, neuroscience. So he's basically manages to combine um, an immense understanding of neuroscience, philosophy, literature, and then, after after kind of going into the brain and understanding it uh, explaining it so kind of a layman can understand rightly he then goes on to chart the history of western civilization through looking at the left and right hemispheres right and it's it's um it correlates so well i believe with reclaiming art because um he talks about how um the right hemisphere the um internal experience which we've managed to kind of neuroscientists have found through um, split brain experiments and um, over over recent decades more prominently um, the the right hemisphere has uh, this ongoing connection with the whole and the um, kind of wholeness and that that's and that the left hemisphere then is the um, kind of the part so he he talked about it's been kind of well known that the sort of we thought that the right hemisphere is silent and that the left hemisphere kind of has all language but actually he says that the right hemisphere is um it understands its language is poetic um and that um both hemispheres kind of work together but in the way they work together with the um the the corpus callosum the bridge um right communication but the large part of this is inhibition so this idea that the right hemisphere is constantly um, seeing like the wholeness of reality um, and it's experiencing that, but it cannot communicate that because it's silent. So it can only, the, the only way we can get at that is by kind of asking questions um, and through that inhibition. And he, the example he gives is of the, that sort of right hemisphere is like the, um, the stone um, which then the kind of sculptor, which is the left hemisphere, uses to sort of process the understanding. So I think that that's, mm. I think, and the way that he um, he he goes into it is just so fascinating. And it's a, I really think it really gets at that idea with the artist as you say, as the artist as a prophet, because, and, and this idea that the the idea comes and then it's a process of kind of chiseling it out. 
and and kind of working on it and getting it getting it right and i think that it's amazing how seemingly what we what we now know of of the brain can almost reflects that in the oh yeah absolutely and you know I, i'm familiar enough with um just the the basic neurology here like the, the right and left hemisphere and um and that certainly seems to confirm a lot of age-old um ideas about reality and how we perceive reality um the whole idea of yin and yang and Taoism is very much a question of left and right hemispheres i think in a way um uh, uh for me i guess the difference between my own approach and and someone who is more um uh committed to a kind of secular scientism or i don't even want a scientific ism <laughs> um, would be that yeah, exactly. Right. So I'm not, I'm not talking about that particular uh, author, but uh, is that uh, a scientist would probably see the, the, the right and left hemispheres, the, the kind of architecture of the brain as the cause of our various takes on reality. Um, whereas I just see the brain as another symbol in a sea of symbols. Yeah. Um, it's a metaphor for the mind. That's what he. Considers. Right. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he, and that's i like him <laughs> yeah genuinely you would I, I feel like you would love um the book because yeah again he very much um he's all about metaphor and the importance of metaphor and how that his suggestion is that in the in the kind of over in the over the course sort of from plato onwards and then um we've kind of and then in the 20th century we've fallen into this kind of left hemisphere focus on the part rather than the whole and this idea that we can like we're worried about artificial intelligence because we think that just connecting enough, um, connecting our things together can get us, get us consciousness. Um, right. And, okay. and that's a reflection of the left hemisphere kind of thinking of the part rather than the whole. And I think that um, that's, especially with weird studies, it's, and as you say, that we, where we need to go back towards is, is reintegrating this wholeness and this up ideas of symbol and we've ba- i think i think he, he sums it up as we've we've fallen we've taken the metaphor as literal and that we've we've kind of we've forgotten that we're these things are metaphors like um atoms and our descriptions of the universe are simply metaphors and that's, right. i think that that is like what art gets us so well is that we can only access truth through through metaphor and through yeah yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. it's what it's one on weird studies we keep talking about the aesthetic universe and aesthetics being a kind of first philosophy um aesthetics as being the, the, the what the world is made of like i always like to say the world's not made of atoms the world's not made of pure mind the world is made of bookshelves and cars and zoom casts and planets <laughs> and supernovas and bubblegum you know that like to be able to look at the aesthetic appearances that surround us and to see those as the fundamental building blocks of of the universe is weird because in a way it's kind of this ultimate anthropomorphic anthropocentric take on things but i argue in my new book that's not yet finished that it's precisely the opposite um but i can't get into that right now because that'll get us down a rabbit hole (laughs) Can't give us the a tiny teaser. <laughs> uh, uh, what can I say? Um, it's really hard for me to talk about the writing when I'm in it. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually actually I almost finished the book last fall, so a year ago. And then when the pandemic hit, I'm like, 
because this new book is has more of a political edge to it, I guess. It's just much more engaging. Well, I guess not really much more than reclaiming art, but it's, I don't know, it felt like the pandemic, I had to pause and wait and see how this whole thing developed before I continued writing it. Um, and then I never haven't touched it again until I didn't touch it again until uh, just before Christmas, where I finally get back, got back into it. So uh, I feel both too in it and too far from it right now. But it is about the a whole idea of the Anthropocene. Um, you, you guys are probably familiar with that concept that we live in a geological era that's being caused by us. And so I start there, but then it becomes about it becomes this. Uh, it becomes a, a book about the restoration of faith in the sense that we we're discussing earlier, faith at a deeper level, not faith as in your creed, but faith on a much more deeper ontological level. Yeah. So the book is about uh, trying to restore a sense of the absolute, I guess. Wow. Um, absolutes are, and, and, and it's not, it's not accomplishing that. It's just pointing towards that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And it's part of a, it's like two things I'm writing. The other thing I'm writing I'm calling Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic, uh, which is a play on Kant's famous essay, Groundwork for Philosophy of Morals. Mm. And that is much more about using, it's much, much easier to talk about. In that one, I argue that we've been using science fiction and detective stories as the guiding uh, analogies for philosophical work in the 20th century, whereas we should now start using fantasy as our... Uh, conceptual kind of model for philosophizing in the future um and uh ah, yeah i hope that makes it intriguing at least yeah, nothing else <laughs> <laughs> we got a little teaser um and yeah. one thing within, within the book um you say this that i thought i thought is really interesting you say that art is the only true effective way of engaging the psyche on its own terms but then in, in, terms of, um, in terms of the psyche, and we can talk about the kind of the Jungian shadow, um, and Lacan talks about this drive not to know, whereby the patient, uh, the patient secretly hates the analyst because the analyst potentially reveals to them um, truths about themselves, truths about the psyche that they wish were kind of kept shrouded, um, shrouded in mystery. And I love the great god Pan, Mackin's story, because I think it's almost the perfect metaphor for the real is the perfect metaphor for kind of truth and modernity that pulling away this kind of a, this prosiac veil reveals to mm -hmm. us a truth that the psyche simply can't cope with. Um, and I'm yeah. interested, do you think that kind of, uh, as we're becoming increasingly alienated in the times of post-modernity, this could actually work against um, people's reception with art because they perceive in it that fundamental danger kind of like Rudolf Otto's mysterious tremendum um, which could cause some form of existential crisis that we're so desperately trying to hide under the sheen of of artifice the the great thing right now in terms of uh well, the great it's a horrible thing the great thing is art's not taken all that seriously right now and so there's not much of a danger that people will shy away from it because they're afraid of the danger in it at the same time i think that the reason that art's not on people's minds is because people are very much afraid of art or they're afraid of what art reveals but i would argue that the danger of not going there is much greater than the danger of going there 
So it's like, we're gonna need to face, I mean, we can see it right now. Uh, you can see it in, in the US, what's going on. There's a complete breakdown uh, in our ability to process reality. It's like, I think that, um, I think most people right now are operating under kind of, uh, kind of delusional, uh, almost like, like profoundly insane in the technical sense, state of mind. So we're, we're, we're headed for the abyss already. So mm. what do we have to lose at this point? My favorite quote of all time is, uh, is, the, Pas is the Pascal quote that all of man's problems um, stem from one fundamental root and that's his inability to be by himself within his own private rooms. So even yeah. the king invents the jester to keep him occupied so he doesn't have to reflect upon upon his uh, reality. Correct. And I think that I think that at the end of the book I talk about how our, how in art we are all alone. Um confronted with the film, you go see a great film and you're with someone let's say, you're sitting in the cinema and all of a sudden you remember there's someone with you there because you've been alone during this experience. It, it, it reminds us of our aloneness and, and good art does that. Um, bad art does the opposite. Um, you, uh, and, and, and there's, there's, that's frightening, especially now when people have been given so many ways of not being alone, of mm. distracting themselves with uh, social media, their phones, you know, um, I can't even begin to describe how catastrophic I think uh, this whole um, thing has been. Uh, despite all the advantages and all the, the great stuff that comes from it, this technology is literally destroying the imagination and um, making it very, very hard for people to, uh, to, to, to think imaginally, to dream while they're awake. Um, and um, and the the cost of that, I think we're already seeing the cost, the, 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 the you know what that cost is now, um, but it'll get worse unless we somehow realize that, as to quote Pascal again, that the heart has its own reasons, mm. of which reason knows nothing. That whole side of things needs to be remembered and. And a capacity to be alone is kind of the precondition for being a full human being, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and so I would encourage anyone to give it a shot. Try to be alone <laughs> for 20 minutes and see how horrible it is. And 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 when you see the horror, keep sitting. Yeah, <laughs> keep. Don't meditating. get up. Don't get up because it's gonna. Yeah, it's horrible. It's it's a horror. So it's doing what horrors do, but you gotta get through it. You know, and, yeah. And do you think? Uh, I think that one of the things that I think your book really does really well in terms of how you define artifice is is talk about the the objectifying process, and then I think that I can really see that so it's so applicable. Um, I think just in terms of in terms of capital, how sort of now is the sort of inevitable objectification of 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 us, and that we are under surveillance capitalism we're the products and the, that we are being manipulated our behavior is being it's being um, um analyzed and then bought and sold 
um, and that that stems from this initial commodification of nature of the natural world, um, the biosphere, which is then this has just inevitably led to now we are the we are the ultimate commodity, and I think that that's you can really see that in 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 how you treat artifice, and that if you don't treat this is what happens when you don't treat people or things the natural world it ends in themselves and that by treating them as means that this exploitation has just continued and continued and continued right oh yeah um huh i don't want to like talk too much about my own work although i guess that's kind of the point um but i i did write a piece called uh for metapsychosis a piece that was called the title was um let me let me remember, <laughs> I remember what it was called uh consciousness in the aesthetic imagination i think that's what it was called or consciousness in the aesthetic vision you can look it up anyways the end of that is a is a, a kind of riff on uh this vermeer painting famous painting by vermeer of the woman holding the scales um and uh it that's where i think i was most successful at articulating exactly that the danger of of judgment in the biblical biblical sense uh the danger of the minute that you decide that your own take on the cosmos is final and complete enough for you to decide what other things are you have already turned yourself into just another thing to which anyone is now free to do the same thing and so judge not lest you be judged right jesus said famously means that it doesn't mean it doesn't mean like like wiccan style karma where if you judge someone three people will judge you tomorrow it's not like that it's more like the minute you begin to judge and i equate here the concept of judging with heidegger's concept of inframing it's the same thing the minute you begin to isolate objects and decide what they mean and to reduce their nature to your use of them you have already made yourself into one of those objects and it's just a matter of time before um, that becomes an undeniable reality of your existence and we're seeing that now you know we've treated everything as parts objects uh you know or as heidegger said standing reserve to quote another murky german um but it was just a matter of time, as he foretold, as he predicted, before we ourselves would become standing reserve, and now we are that. Um, and it's 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 time to realize this and to do something about it. So that's um yeah, I completely agree. I I, I really like a question concerning technology. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a fantastic book. And there's another there's another thinker called Walter Percy. Um, I think yes. he was a, a literary critic and he talks about all the ore being stripped away from the Grand Canyon because everyone would have seen it before on a postcard. And we actually use when we're seeing an incredible view, sometimes we use the turn of phrase as pretty as a picture um, in the sense of the kind of uh, the commodification through postcards, even if I'm posting it on social media, kind of subsumes the actual experience. We no longer yeah. act for the sake of acting. We act for the sake of the other. And I think that's the scariest thing because at least in terms of my experience with social media, it's so pervasive. Spotify now as well. Yeah. 
you can see yeah. your friends are listening to and Netflix parties and yeah, you know, everything we do is now geared towards the uh, towards the eye of the other, and it's just I feel like it's so pervasive, it's so ingrained that it's almost so hard to separate. And I'm not sure if there is a chance of separation. Like, are you still optimistic in regard to moving yeah, away yes. from the planning reserve? Yes, I absolutely am optimistic. Uh, but ultimately, I think it comes down to, um, I don't think, I don't, I'm not a big believer in utopian collective solutions anymore. I think that those tend to backfire, and that's unfortunate. And here again, I would agree with Heidegger, his famous late utterance, his famous late utterance, which was, only a god can save us now. I think that we're all waiting for some kind of event that will force enough individuals to, to realize certain things, that things will change. I really do believe that's the only thing that can save us is the event, capital E. I don't, I'm not a Marxist anymore. I don't trust the people whose politics I share anymore. Um, I certainly don't trust the other side as any better anymore um, <laughs> as well, but yeah. But um, the, um, I think that we're waiting for some kind of event. But in the meantime, it's rather simple, I think. It, but it, at the same time, very difficult for us to go uh, to, 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 to tune out uh, of that whole thing. Um, but it just like, there's another piece I wrote um, that I don't know if you guys are familiar with. It's called Reality is Analog. It's, uh, it's a philosophical essay on Stranger Things, the, the show. And uh, it was published after the first season. Uh, the, I thought the, the second season was garbage. Um, well, for the second season was okay. And the third season was absolutely garbage. But the first season I thought was like literally like a masterpiece, uh, at least the way I took it in. But anyways, I wrote this, this book and it's, it's called Reality's Analog, Philosoph Philosophizing with Stranger Things. And it's really about that, about how we recover the dead time that's been taken away from us, the time that we used to spend waiting in lines or waiting for the phone to ring or writing letters. You know, it sounds romantic and silly. The time, those, those, that time when, because I grew, I'm old enough to have grown up, like I, I was, I think I was 21 when I got my first email address. So before that, the afternoons could stretch out, you know, like <laughs> you really had to find things to do. Um, you, time, you know, and that loss of dead time, they always say now with parenting guides, they're like, let your kids get bored. I agree with that idea. Let them get bored. Don't always distract them uh, is important. And I think it's fairly easy to do on the individual level, as long as you can decide to get off social media, you just need to get off. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the, the biggest the most convincing um, thinker on this particular subject that I know of is Douglas Rushkoff, who's very, very compelling when it comes to giving you reasons to get the hell off of social media. Um, and then, or at least limit your time on it. And, uh, and then do things like, like my wife got me this for Christmas. I guess your listeners won't hear, but this is a, this is a, this is a fountain pen. You guys have fountain pens in your house? You look like you live in a home with fountain pens. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but this is a, a fantastic fountain pen that my wife got me for Christmas. And I've decided to write with it now. So I always write, unless I'm writing emails, if I'm writing an essay, if I'm writing a story, I write with this pen. And 
I love this pen so much. This pen is so goddamn awesome that um, I don't even want to be at my computer. <laughs> so, so like, but it has already uh, in a short time, it has already uh, allowed me to restore certain connections that I used to have with parts of my mind that were almost inaccessible to me. Um, so I think that we need to each kind of make our own choices when it comes to how we at least free ourselves from this horrible nightmare that is the kind of digital newosphere. And, um, and we need to take, do whatever it takes. Taking walks is good. Going to the art gallery when such things become possible again. Um, meditating, becoming a Buddhist monk is probably a great solution. <laughs> it's the best way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that um, it's very much this idea of that we've kind of, we've got lost in the metaphor and that uh, I was really interested looking into the origins of, of binary coming from um, the I Ching. Um, and that being the, um, who was it? Was it Leibniz? Was it? Um, yeah. Yeah, his inspiration. Yeah, that's where he got it from. And that this idea that, um, similar to the way that the, the I Ching constructs, constructs a reality through, through meaning, really. Um, mm -hmm. the, the internet, that through binary, we've constructed this reality for ourselves and then kind of become, become lost in it. And I think, um, and perhaps capital is like the ultimate um, version of that, that we've, we've constructed this. Capital is a kind of the atheistic God and that we've, we kind of forget that it is a, it is a construction and that, people people kill and do and we yeah. just destroying our planet for a for a fictional thing and that yeah. we've we've got caught in the metaphor and that that's that's what we have to see the frames for what they are right right and a, a misunderstood metaphor is very much a kind of god um and uh the you know alan ginsburg's poem um uh, howl is all about capital really uh he calls it moloch who is the demon of the ancient world, as Gandalf would say, probably. Uh, Moloch was worshipped in Carthage and other places uh, by the Phoenicians, and he was a, like, a, like a metal god that they would sacrifice children to. Um, and I do, I tend to be a bit of a perennialist in the sense that I, whenever I see something modern, um, I always try to find out how this is something very old and a new guy's. And I think that you're absolutely right, that, that, that ultimately we are, by our actions, worshipping something that maybe doesn't really deserve to be worshipped all that much, you know? I think maybe it deserves the occasional offering, but not certainly <laughs> the sacrifice <laughs> of our children. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I love um, the description of it, of capital as a god. Because there's a, there's a great uh, Russian existentialist philosopher called Yakov Druskin. And he says that uh, the hardest thing, why being a Christian is so brave, at least why being a Russian Orthodox Christian is so brave, is because as soon as you recognize the existence of the Russian Orthodox Christian God, you also have to recognize the existence of your own sin. And he, his diary essentially categorizes um, his, his life uh, was self-loathing, self essentially because he knew that he could never live this perfect ideal as to a God, as to what he thought God would want him to do. And I think that that's the bravery required in breaking away from social media and breaking away from capital in the sense of you first have to recognize 
their existence, but recognition of their existence then involves necessary self-negation. Otherwise, you kind of live this hypocritical, um, almost sinful existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's very, very well said. Absolutely. But the the great trick with social media is that it, 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 um, it places you, it, it puts you in a situation of infinite debt where you always owe another post. You always um, are owed another like. You don't always get, there's a, the transactional nature to which it reduces all human interaction is really problematic. And then of course um, you have this now with the uh, witch hunts and the, um, the cancel culture stuff and all that. I don't like to use that term because I'm not, um, but the, uh, like the amazing ability of people on social media to get together and destroy someone's life um, is scary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, once you've been uh, at the receiving end of that sort of thing, uh, there's never any atonement that's enough, right? So you'll have people saying stupid things they shouldn't have said and then paying for it very, very dearly. And so it's not like social media is part of this brave new world that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's gotten rid of things like sin. Sin proliferates. It's like Zizek says, you know, um, Zizek contradicts Dostoevsky. He quotes Dostoevsky who said that once God is dead, everything is permitted. Zizek says, as we've seen now, since God's been dead now for 120 years, we can see now that when God is dead, everything is prohibited. Uh, everything becomes a question of guilt. Um, everything becomes a question of, of, is it bad for your health? Is it bad for your community? Is it bad? You know, um, there, there is, and, and I think that what the Russian Orthodox thinkers often remind us of, which is really crucial, is that sin is so profoundly deep that once you recognize how sinful you are, you're kind of innocent. <laughs> you're in a weird way, you're innocent, or at least... The only, the only judgment you're, you need to be hearing at that point, once you've made that step, is the judgment of God, certainly not the judgment of your peers who are constantly going to be judging you either way, negatively, no matter what. It's like people on social media don't realize that in life, since the beginning of time, even when your friend, even when your good friend succeeds at something, as a lot of aphorists have pointed out, there's a little part of you that's like, hmm. Why, if he succeeded or she succeeded, why that means I might not succeed. You know, there's a kind of like jealousy ingrained in human nature that we all have to struggle with and overcome. And it's almost like Twitter and Facebook pretends that that part of us just doesn't exist. We're all just benevolent supporters of one another. And it's just so, uh, such a juvenile, such an immature take on human nature that how could it lead to anything but absolute disaster? You just, mm. you know. I'm seeing this with my daughter who's like 10 now and she's getting into social media and we're trying to control that because we don't want her to be, we want her to be able to navigate that world, but we don't want her. To, and it's already, you can see how it sinks your, it just, it, it, it's like a presence in her room, right? It's like a, like an octopus in the room. I don't know how else to describe it and it's doing its thing. And now we have to try to get that back under control, put the genie back in the bottle because it's, it's dangerous stuff. I also think that it, it, it exploits something it, it's got it's got enough it's got this knowledge of of human nature which i think it exploits so well which is is is, is the profound but very simple thing that um that we we each exist in our own individual world and that we think that we are um 
we think we think that we're in the same world acting differently but actually we're just in different worlds acting similarly and i think that that's the kind of the the key thing that um social media exploits so well and that what we're seeing is that say something like netflix or spotify that they're they're tailored for your personal world and that although we think that that, that these things are connecting us they're actually just um put, locking us even more into these specifically tailored um, right. media worlds and that it's, uh, it's yeah it's separating us even more yeah exactly i think that that's that's exactly the truth i think that um you know, the, the whole point of Facebook was to connect. They always talk about connectivity, connecting people. Uh, but in fact, the entire uh, MO and the, the raison d'etre of uh, these um, constructs is precisely the opposite. It's to um, commodify that which had not been commodified, which is uh, um, uh, relationship. Relationships had not been commodified before social media. Um, your relation to your parents, to your neighbors, to your friends had not was something the capital hadn't touched. And now it's basically that's the product. And so your relationships, you might be in the same class as someone, but you get home and then you text. And that's when the relationship with that person is revealed to the forces that want to control it. And you give them all this information. And then that feed the feedback me mechanism that the machine is built is to, to loop back into your relationship and start to change it. Um, through siloing you, through feeding you the information it thinks that you you need to hear to, to, to ingest while feeding your friend different information and creating these uh, these really, really um, horrible dynamics. Um, and sometimes they might be positive, but even when they're positive, they're not ultimately good um, because you should be able, just as you should be able to be alone with yourself, as Pascal recommended, you should also be able to be alone with the other, with the with your friend, with your parents, with your whoever it is. You're, you should be able to deal with these people, with these each person as a thou, not as an it filtered through uh, a, a, a medium. And what was it? I think one of the most profound things I I, I saw um, in regards to this was um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's um, if you heard him, he's a yeah, a Theravada um, monk, famous translator, and he came up with a um, as a triangle, a pyramid called the actualization of value, and um, with the, the the bottom of the pyramid being material security and biological survival, then above that social and emotional fulfillment, then above that aesthetic and intellectual fulfillment, and then at the top spiritual fulfillment, and that his point and that so you've got like the fundamental value the human value the cultural value and then the ultimate value and that what he's was saying is that what capital has done is just completely inverted this with with capital at the top and then commodifying then then we've got the fundamental value which has been commodified and then the human value which has then been commodified and then we've got the 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 aesthetic and intellectual um value and fulfillment the cultural value which is your book does so well that's been commodified and then what we're seeing potentially with kind of headspace on netflix and the mindfulness movement with spiritual fulfillment is becoming commodified and that's this inversion is what's um causing us so many of these the issues that we're having right no absolutely that's that's very that's very true i agree with that and it's it's 
you ask yourself how, how we change that, it's very hard to come up with viable concrete solutions to something like that, but it's true. And um, I think that the reign of artifice, and artifice has always existed, you know, like severed heads along the road to leading to a castle was artifice. It was communicating something very clear to the people who, uh, to the spectators of such a thing uh, for centuries. And, and of course the, the Roman circus, and you can come up with all kinds of ideas of what artifice has been throughout history. But the, the problem is now is that as McLuhan saw is that the, um, the uh, technological innovation of the last couple of hundred years has, has made this an issue, a real major issue where it becomes harder and harder for art to shine through the kind of miasmic ocean of artifice in which we exist. So I see this as an attempt on capital spark, if you want to call it that, Moloch or whatever, to colonize the imagination and to make it harder and harder for us to um, move from what Coleridge called fancy, the kind of like normal everyday putting together of things that we do in our heads to the primary imagination, uh, which he saw as a, a real part of the cosmos, like an actual geographic reality that we could access with our minds. And that's becoming, that's just receding further and further from us. And our minds are filled with um, patented and copyrighted ideas that belong to other people. Um, and, uh, and, but I don't think that's the reason I'm an optimist is that they can't really change reality. You know, the primary imagination remains there. And the worst thing that could happen is that a huge collapse would make this suddenly blindingly obvious to everyone. Um, I hope that that won't happen because I, 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 I want I want to benefit from the society we've constructed. I, I like the comforts it affords us. It allows me to be a decadent flaneur for the rest of my life. Like <laughs> it's fantastic, but like, <laughs> but at the same time, um, uh, what cost, right? So there, there, there needs to be a point where the cost is too high. And I guess returning to that, this, this idea of, of play and realizing that, that we are um, that that idea of the aesthetic universe, and that we are the like the works of art. Have you seen um, in the film *The Holy Mountain* by Jodorowsky? Hmm. Yes, that was one of the most profound um, illustrations for me of of how um, we are we are like um, the characters in a film, and that it's kind of pulling back the camera. And I really think that's probably potentially one of the most weird studies films I've, I've yes. ever seen. I can't believe that that hasn't been an episode. Um, We've discussed it. We've discussed it. Um, it's almost too obvious. Some, yeah, some, yeah, some yeah. Some fruit hangs so too on the nose. So yeah. on the nose. Um, yeah. But yeah, just the idea of the aesthetic universe and realizing um, the frames and our, our places, characters, characters within it and returning to that spirit of play and that ultimately um, we don't know why we're here and the, the purposes and the, the reasons it's that kind of simple question that I feel like everyone needs to just ask themselves more, which is, are you sure? <laughs> that, mm -hmm. And ultimately that, that is the grand mystery that we, we have to keep reminding ourselves of. And I think, right. uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt that, but I think um, on, on the, on the basis of that, um, if we recognize the grand mystery, at least to me, it almost leads me down the alley to the conclusion of Lieben's philosophy 
um, the kind of hypothesization of life itself, kind of the Goethe quote, um, the purpose of life is, is life, um, the existence in the very present. And I think, uh, again, uh, it's a very Clarkesian conclusion uh, because I'm literally just a, a mouthpiece for, for his dead body. Um, but I think that the purpose of life being living, um, I think that is the, that is almost the ultimate reality for me. Not even a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I often feel that I'm a mouthpiece for Gilles Deleuze, <laughs> <laughs> even though I think that he would probably disagree with some of the ways I interpret his work, but I just can't get him out of my system. And uh, he said something very similar towards the end. He wrote a beautiful essay called Pure Eminence, in which he tries to, it's kind of a conclusion. Um, it's one of those old age essays that in a way you should read first if you read Deleuze, uh, where he talks about the concept of a life, not life, capital L, a life. And he's like, reality is a life. Everywhere you look, it's just the indefinite article is essential to getting at the how wonderfully singular each moment of this existence is, how miraculous the thing, the whole thing is, how unknowable it ultimately is, but how we can know that, strangely, paradoxically. Mm. And how... I would argue that it's that realization, that gnosis, that dissolves our um, our bad certainties, our, our 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 need to clamp down on things, to judge things. There's a there's an it's incredible balm to be faced with uh, the ultimate horrific mystery of things. It's it's it really it's really good for the soul, and it really. Um, if, if, if all those people in Washington last yesterday, because we're, we're recording this the day after that ridiculous show in Washington where the, um, if all those people could have just for one second, for some reason, realized how much, how little they know about anything, how little Trump knows about anything. He's particularly, he's particularly poignant example here of how much we don't know what's going on in this world. Um, then that wouldn't have happened. You know, it's kind of a almost a platitude to point it out. Um, but let us remember. Let us remember how how we let us remember our own unknowing, you know, mm. and celebrate it with art. <laughs> and I think uh, I think that's that's a beautiful note in which I'm going to end this episode on. Um, for I think we've reached the hour and a half mark, and uh, I'm not sure I can persuade people to to sit down for one moment <laughs> longer than that, unfortunately. But thank Probably you not. ever so much for being here, JF. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure for me as well. Uh, it was great to meet you guys. Perfect. And yeah, hopefully uh, long may the, the correspondence between deceleration yes. theory and weird studies continue. Absolutely. I think that was a, that was a great conversation, guys. I was really enjoying that. And it, it went to places that... Um, I don't usually go to when I go on other podcasts. I'm, I'm very, very happy with it.